This is a Federal News Network podcast. The nation's veterans have served the country, but life after the military often comes with special financial challenges made tougher by inflation. As Veterans Day approaches, we check in with the president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association, Mike Meese. Mr. Meese, good to have you back. Great to be with you again, Tom. And we should point out that you are a retired officer yourself, and so you've got real empathy there. Exactly. Served 32 years in the Army and now transitioned to helping veterans uh, through our association. Let's talk about, for a moment, the veterans population itself. I mean, there's the model that persists that the bulk of them are World War II and then a somewhat smaller group of Vietnam and then everybody that came after. That is really out of date, though, isn't it? It is a little bit. It's interesting that the peak of the when our nation had the most number of veterans was actually about 1977 when there were 28 million veterans in America and that was out of a smaller population. We've now gone with uh, the World War One and World War Two, and uh, many of the Korean War veterans passing away. We're now down to about 18 million veterans. And uh, as uh, many of us may recall, we started the all-volunteer force in 1973. Right now, at just about the halfway point, where half of the veterans came in after the draft ended in 1973, and then half were uh, people that came in the military. Not all were drafted, but certainly were in the military in Korea, Vietnam, or um, uh, some World War II uh, before we went to the all-volunteer force. Right. So it's skewing a little bit younger maybe than maybe uh, 20 years ago. It is. And so the needs of the veterans are changing. And the Veterans Administration and various organizations like ours have had to adjust to take care of the needs of younger veterans as uh, those that have served valiantly in uh, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam are passing from our ranks. And I have to point out how persistent the phrase Veterans Administration still is, even though it's been the Department of Veterans Affairs, I think, now for 25 years. But we'll forgive you that one. Let me ask you this, though. In the current times, especially on the younger end of the veterans population, is it your sense that they have maybe more or more difficult economic challenges than the general population? Well, I think the whole population has challenges with inflation and veterans probably like everybody else does. What's interesting, though, with the younger population, many of them have taken advantage of their veterans' benefits, especially educational benefits. And so consequently, uh, what has been very heartening to see over the last decade has been more veterans getting into the workforce In fact, veteran unemployment fell last month down to the lowest that it's ever been at 2.4%. So fortunately, veterans are getting jobs, which is helpful, even though sometimes their wages are not keeping up with the challenges of inflation. And the reason they're so employable, a lot of that has to do with the training they have gotten in the military. And would you also say some of the VBA programs are helping there? I think so, uh, absolutely. Uh, The Veterans Benefit uh, Administration that's part of the Department of Veterans Affairs is very good with vocational rehabilitation training and helping veterans uh, get a leg up into uh, jobs. And a lot of employers have programs for, um, uh, like we do, that encourage our veterans uh, to join um, uh, organizations and have affinity groups and work with each other, helping to improve 
their workforces when they uh, join whatever job it happens to be. We're speaking with Mike Meese. He is president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. And what do employers get when they hire a veteran relative to maybe someone else? They get somebody who has clearly demonstrated their experience in uh, being disciplined, being organized, being able to get jobs done, to be focused on the mission. And the other aspect that I think is particularly important in today's workforce where diversity and inclusiveness is important is the military has been focused on diversity and inclusiveness throughout its history because in order to be an effective military unit, you have to be able to take advantage of everybody that's in that unit. You're working with people from all kinds, every state, every background, every uh, demographic, and you don't get to choose who your roommate is, who your first sergeant is, who your commander is. You have to work with those folks, and so consequently, they bring the uh, experience of working in a diverse workforce and making everybody in their team better uh, as they go into whatever job they happen to have. And let's get down to one brass tax issue I wanted to ask you about because this comes up from time to time and the cybersecurity phishing attack situation is getting worse for all Americans. But because of their particular identity and backgrounds, veterans are often the target of very highly specialized and focused scams. What do you see going on there, and what are some of the remedies to help them avoid getting caught? No, you're right. Uh, There are lots of scammers who do take advantage of the fact that uh, veterans have kind of a fixed schedule of things, whether it's getting their federal benefits or uh, right now there's a – Uh, The good news for veterans that are on disability is they'll get an 8.7% increase in disability check, which starts in January, and that starts absolutely automatically. Uh, They don't need to do anything for that, but scammers will probably call them up and knowing that this is going to happen, say, hey, you have to apply this or you have to do something to be sure that you can get your um, uh, information Um, updated and that you could get this 8.7% increase in disability payments, everybody should know that the VA will never call and ask you for that kind of information. All of their communications is in writing if there's going to be any change to your benefits or anything like that. So anybody who is trying to elicit information from anybody in general and particularly from veterans, they are almost always uh, a somebody trying to take advantage of you, and you should never give anybody any of that information. If it is a serious person, they'll send you a letter, or you can ask them to give you a callback letter and then validate that with the Department of Veterans Affairs to be sure that it is, in fact, a legitimate person. What's your best advice this Veterans Day for the veterans and for VA? Well, for both, let me concentrate just briefly on veterans. Uh, obviously, with inflation, uh, and we deal this with our AFMA members, some are, have been able to figure out inflation, have the savings, have the things to be able to take care of their family. If you're in that circumstance, help out other veterans. Uh, volunteer at the various uh, community outreach uh, places that are helping those veterans that may have challenges. And the other part is to communicate to veterans is, you know, people do get into circumstances, especially with inflation, with cars breaking down, with all kinds of problems. You should never be so proud that you are not willing to take advantage of all of the organizations that are out there that are there designed to help veterans. So if you need help, 
it's okay to ask for that help and get that help. And if you're in a good situation, a great way to give back is to continue to help those community organizations uh, and help other veterans and others that are out there. It makes all of us continue in that mission that we had while we were serving in the military. And for VA? VA, uh, again, they fortunately have worked through much of the backlog and they're modernizing their systems has been a great outreach. Secretary McDonough has done a good job now, especially implementing the PACT Act uh, and continuing to stay in touch with individuals that are eligible for all the airborne hazards has been a great step by the VA. And now they just need to reach more and more people, and they're continuing to do that. So veterans out there who were exposed, again, younger veterans either in Iraq or Afghanistan who uh, were exposed to airborne hazards should be getting uh, reached by the VA or contact the VA to be able to take advantage of the new provisions under the PACT Act to make sure that they are recorded. And then as they have any health conditions, they can get help from the VA to take care of that. Mike Meese is president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, Have a happy Veterans Day. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot